We're continuing where we left off, and we are, it, it is 9-27-2020. We're going to continue with the thought of the week and prayer. And here is the thought of the week. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Faith is the only way sinful man can receive God's gracious offer of salvation. Obviously, grace does not violate grace, I'm sorry, faith does not violate grace at all. The very nature of faith requires that you look away from yourself. In contrast, the law is like a mirror. When you look at the law, it reflects back on you. Faith is the opposite of looking to the law, and its focus is on the person of Christ. When we look away from ourselves to Christ, we see who and what he is. He is the Lord and Savior. He performed all the work necessary to save us. First, he lived a perfectly obedient life before the Father. He earned a righteous, he earned a righteousness which no one condemned in Adam ever could. Second, he was judged for the sins of the whole world. John, verse, John 1, verse 29. All your sins and all mine were imputed to Christ on the cross, and then he was punished by the Father. Isaiah 53, 10. The Father is satisfied with the work of Christ on our behalf. Faith, in every sense, looks away from self for its function. Faith in the Word of God trusts that we are the ones who are hopelessly and helplessly lost, and Christ is the only one who is qualified to save. Now, we must know that just looking to Christ and understanding that he is the Savior is not faith. Faith not only looks away from self to Christ, it puts the matter of our soul salvation squarely on Christ's shoulders. We realize that without him, we are helpless. Faith trusts this important matter of our soul salvation to Christ. So when we trust our salvation to Christ, we stop trying to impress God or show him that we are somehow worthy in ourselves. We simply depend, trust, and rely on Christ to do what he does best, save us. And that is the thought of the week. And I'd like to offer some commentary on that. These are salvation verses, Ephesians 2.8 and 2.9. And it is really critical to understand that faith is not work. It is not an effort that we do. It is simply a matter of where are we going to place our trust. For our soul, soul salvation. It is a decision that we make based on an informed decision based on the word of God. So he tells us that no one is righteous, none, not even one does good. So that we understand that we are perfectly disqualified from being our, our own savior. We do need an external savior. And the only one that has fully pleased God is Jesus Christ. And God's provision for us was 
that we just simply believe in Christ and his righteousness is imputed to us. Thank God. And that is my commentary on Ephesians. And now Dave will give us the prayer. Thanks, Dwight. Anyone have a special request, friend? Anything to check out this morning? Um, I do have a prayer request. Uh, so the Haddon family, which is my sister Gail's, uh, it's Kenny who is in the hospital. We're praying for him as well at this hour. Okay. Anyone else? For me and my family. Okay. At this time, let's bow our heads to the Heavenly Father. We'll pray. Most gracious Father, we come to you, Lord, on Sunday, Lord, with our special request for our family, Father. Look over us, Father, and comfort us in our time of need and want, Father. We pray for the Gail family, Father, and Pastor family, the Myers family, the White family, and my family, Father. Pray for us that we should receive comfort, Father, in our loss, the time of loss, Father. We pray for those who are in need of vision of salvation. Father, we ask for you, Lord, to look over us as we go to our daily wants and needs of sweet, Father, to give us strength, to give us guidance, Father, to give us encouragement, Father. To learn more of you, Lord, so we can grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Father, we ask you as we hear the message, Father, coming from our past that we can grow, Father, and continue to grow up, Father, in your word. So we can be able to go out there and tell someone about you, Lord. And maybe they can accept your provision and your knowledge that you will work for them. Because you always have me, Father. Always do the right thing, Father. And we here, Lord, looking to heaven, looking to you, Lord. You gave us our comfort and our guidance that we need while we're still in this world. Father, we ask the name about we ask you for the name of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dave and uh, Dwight. We appreciate Amen. much appreciated. And uh, what we'd like to do is um, get started. Uh, so we have some a small text in front of us, uh, one verse, and but I felt like there was a lot there to consider, so we're just going to take this one verse. Uh, if you have notes, let's pull them out, let's get started. So in John 15, 3, the verse is, You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. So in your notes, it is important for us to establish a firm foundation in the Christian life. We should build this foundation carefully. This foundation is like building a tall building, very much like the ones we see in large cities. While we admire the buildings for their stature and design, we know someone had to do the engineering properly to ensure that building has the proper foundation. For there is a pro if there is a problem in the foundation, disastrous results can follow. It is a matter of life and death that the foundation be sturdy and solid. The whole weight of the building depends on the foundation being able to support it. So it is in the Christian life. The foundation we have must be solid. 
Once the building begins, our foundation must support the growth of our new spiritual life. If there are problems in the foundation, we may have to start all over again. Are you sure of your foundation? How much time have you spent making sure it is solid? So this is a part of uh, where we want to start thinking toward as we think about Christ's statement here in John 15, 3. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Now we'll get to all that, uh, at least what we can glean from what he's saying, but uh, just the thought of it is that he's going back to the foundation. We'll, we'll talk about what is clean. and Why don't we just jump right in? You are already clean. So the first thought is katharos. That means clean, and it just means literally what you think it means. Clean, clear, pure. And that comes from Thayer. So even though he says clean, he could mean other things by it other than salvation. <clears throat> I'm going to help you know, understand why I would think it is re reflective of salvation. But not only salvation, we're going to talk about the more. But first and foremost, it is salvation. And we can be sure God does not put the cart before the horse. So let's keep going. Point B, the disciples are clean. Now, I didn't say that. I didn't think that because I've gleaned it from the context or something. I got it from what Jesus said. So he said they're clean. That Whatever you thought about them, well, they're clean. So let's read some commentary on this from Jesus. Why does he say they are clean? And, and it's in the context, so we might as well go and look at it. So it's John chapter 13, and we're going to look at the first 17 verses. So it's a lot. Uh, let, me, let me just read it so we get the picture. 13, 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Notice, he turns a corner here. Well, not that he hadn't turned it in 12, because 12 was very in-depth as well with these reflective thoughts. But here in 13, he begins to see, uh, you know... He understands, he's, you know, approaching this Passover festival. And the funny thing is, when Jews are sacrificing that Passover lamb and celebrating Passover, Christ was on the cross, suffering for our sins. So, this, while others are thinking, oh, it's just a Jewish festival, Passover, you know, Jesus is thinking about the time that is coming very close to him departing this world. So verse 2, in the, the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew the Father had put all things under his power and he had come from God and was returning to God. So again, verse 3 is very reflective of Jesus knowing that he's turning the corner here. And he's been preparing for the church age. And he had a dual purpose when he came. Not only, well, more than dual. <laughs> he knew he had to come and, and 
fulfilled the Father's plan, which is the salvation plan, which is to die for the sins of the world, to live a life that was righteous before God. He knew that that was a part of what he had to do. But it also was reflective of what was to come. And that's what's happening here in verse 3. Jesus knew the Father put all things under his power. So Jesus is the Son, right? He's the adopted Son. What do you mean adopted? Well, that means that the Father had put all power in Jesus. The plan calls for Jesus to be the focal point of all things. He's the creator. He's Now he's all things are going to be under Jesus, right? Not only that, but just the plan of God is going to flow through Jesus. So he put all things under his power and had come from the God and was returning to God. So again, Jesus is very reflective here of uh, what's to come. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. So this statement, even though, you know, you might think, oh, you know, there's lots of lessons to be learned in this feet washing uh, thing that Jesus is doing, I think it is related to what's going to happen next for this small band of disciples. So it is very, uh, you know, we can't just say, oh, it's just washed feet. It's just a lesson in humility. Uh, we're going to learn more about it. So, so then, uh, so, so he says, um, this is verse uh, 8. Uh, now, no, Peter said, no, literally, he said to Christ, You shall never wash my feet, Jesus answered. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. So this is, P Peter submitted this. I, he, he, Jesus already told him you, didn't, you, you wouldn't understand now. I understand this is going to be the case, so bear with me, is what he said. But Peter was not bearing with him. And he says, no, 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 no. That's not going to happen. You're not washing my feet. You're the Lord. I'm serving you. So how in the world am I going to let you wash my feet? Verse 9. Lord, the Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet. This is how his response was. Uh, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. So Jesus answered, verse 10, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. So now, here's where we enter <laughs> the word clean in this context. Jesus said, the whole body is clean. You don't need to have a, a bath all over again, right? This, in other words, the full body washing is a bath. You can just, Jesus needs to wash your feet. And... Uh, Washing feet is a symbol or a synonym for fellowship. You need to be on one accord with the way I'm thinking. 
So Jesus washes their feet. He's going to tell them why he's done it later, but let's just let him play it out. So he says, but not every one of you is clean. So whatever clean is, the disciples already have that. They just need feet washing. They don't need a whole bath. But not every one of them is clean. You are. He just makes a statement, and you are clean. This is li- literally the same statement that he made in our context of 15.3. You are already clean. And he said to them, you are clean, though not every one of you. So now we got to look at what does he mean, because there's going to be some distinguishing factors that help us understand the differences. So, verse 11, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. So, obviously, we have it in verse 11. Judas is going to betray him. And this is a problem. This is a problem, right? Within the, the 12 disciples who are here, that one is going thinking of betraying. Now, you know, it's like a spy. You could say Judas is there. But he's really not on board with what Jesus is doing or has done. Just remember, Judas saw all the signs, the wonders, the miracles that Jesus performed. So for him to be a spy, I mean, it's quite interesting that he is not on board with the rest of them. Because obviously it is a choice that Judas is making here. We're going to find out more. When he had finished, verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to the place. This is what he says, to his place. He says, do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. And this is Jesus' explanation of what he has done. Let's just read it real quick. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. You also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I am not, so this is where I end in 17, there's a lot more, but just the thought, we already distinguished from looking at what clean was, is there's a difference, and that goes into point C, what was the difference between Judas and the rest of the disciples, so we need to note that, so that means we need to go back and look and see what Judas did or did not do that was different from the rest of the disciples. For that, let's go to John chapter 6, 64 through 71. Um, 64, yet, uh, okay, so, let's see. Verse 64, yet there are some of you who do not believe. Now, if you know the context, I hate to just jump into the middle of the scripture, but if you know the context, you know that there were, Jesus had performed the miracle of the fishes and loaves, And he multiplied them for this large crowd of people. It was miraculous. And uh, they were all fed. And then the next day they came back. They wanted more. (coughs) So there were people who were following Jesus. But what we realize is they were not following him for the right reasons. 
there were problems. So many of them departed and didn't want to, they left him. They didn't want to learn after he said a few spiritual things that threw them off. So, uh, so here's what he says uh, in verse 67. I'm sorry. Yeah. 64. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. Now, there it is. The statement that he's making, he's talking directly to his disciples uh, who are left after the other ones walked away. So that's when they walked away, you could read that in verse uh, 60. It says, on hearing it, Many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that the disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus says, does this offend you? Right? And he goes on. Uh, so, but this one, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. So let's keep on going. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Now, when it says his disciples, they were people following Jesus, man. They were keeping up with where he was going to be next, what was going to be, uh, where he was headed next. They were following him from country to region to, you know, all the different places that he would go. But then they backed up at this point. Now, there was only left the twelve. And this is what he says to them in verse 67. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. And verse 68, Simon Peter had the right answer, just like he did in other places. He answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. What an answer. What an answer. And we have come to believe. And listen to this. We have come to to believe. It didn't, it didn't say we've always believed. This is what we've been... This is not a political answer. This is an honest answer. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And guess what? Judas was here listening to Peter when he said this. And there was a problem with Judas. A problem where Judas did not believe, as we have seen where Jesus said in 64, there are some of you who do not believe. And then he's talking about the one who would betray him. Who's that? Judas. Judas is one who did not believe. So in, when it came to, I mean, imagine he's standing there when P Peter answers Christ in this way. And I, I just said it was profound. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. So, this is Jesus' response. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil, meaning an adversary. So he's not just saying he's a devil like a demon, like Hollywood type things. He's saying a devil in the sense that he's an adversary, someone who is against right, against the agenda of Christ. So there's a spy, you could say. There's someone who is with him, is listening to all the things that are going on, 
and yet he's not on board with them. So he meant, and then verse 71, is it clear or not? He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who through, the, though he was one of the twelve, was later to betray him. So we ought to know there's a lot of things to the story that we should pay attention to. So we're going to go to 13, back to John chapter 13, um, and verse 18 through 21. We'll look at this real quick. 13, 18, and, well, verses 18, and then we'll read verses 21 to 30. 18 says, I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. So this is, again, Jesus is saying, I'm aware of the fact that there's this person within our ranks who's spying upon us. This is interesting because Judas is a part of the events that happen that lead to Christ being arrest, arrested in the garden right after the discourse that we are actually in right now in John chapter 15 and, and 16 and 17, but also lands him on the cross and judged by Pilate and where God uses that as a backdrop to judge the sins of the world in Christ. So in verse 21, he continues, After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified. Now, listen, first of all, who is Jesus? What is he thinking? He's troubled here. He's not worried that Judas is going to betray him. He knows already. But you know what? We're right at the cusp of it. We're right at the time where Judas has to go do it. Judas has already been conspiring with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to arrest, to get Jesus arrested. He know, Jesus already knows this, but he treats him with the utmost respect and kindness and, and love for his soul. But he says he was troubled in spirit and testified. Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. So I think Jesus even though he was a betrayer. He didn't treat him as an enemy. He, tr he treated him as someone for whom he was getting ready to die and pay for their sins. So Judas had every opportunity to believe in Christ. I mean, G Judas was there when Peter said, uh, who do men say that I am? And, and they all looked at him and said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah. And Peter jumped up and said, you are the Christ. Son of the living God. And he made it clear. And then Jesus said, the Father has revealed these things. Now, Judas was, was standing there the whole time. So this was troubling. That he knew he had every opportunity to believe. But he didn't. Verse 22, his disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and interesting in the way John <laughs> portrays himself, was reclining next to him. 
Simon Peter motioned to the disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered in him, into him, so Jesus told him, What you were about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. So we're <clears throat> we're keeping we're gonna keep going, but we could see what the difference was here already. Judas was not a believer. So I'm concluding from this that clean means that Judas was not saved. When he says not everybody is clean here. And then he points out Judas, who in his heart was thinking of betraying Jesus, while the other disciples were devoted to him, loving him, and trusting him with their very lives. Judas was thinking about betraying him. So, continuing, point D. So Judas was an unbeliever among the disciples. Let's look at verse uh, Luke. Let's go to Luke for this one. Uh, 22, 3 through 6. Luke 22, you want to turn there? 3 through 6. So it says, Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went, with, went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. So notice, Satan had already influenced Judas to do this work. And this is prior to the Passover. And so Judas was already collaborating with the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and figuring out how he might betray Jesus. I mean, it's interesting to note, was Judas a plant by them? I mean, it was not beneath them to send a plant into Jesus' organization and to spy on the organization. I mean, much like spies do today. They go and they, you know, try to behave as though they're, you know, part of who they're trying to infiltrate. And then they go in and they get these secrets and then they feed them back to, you know, these are spies. Was Judas a spy? That's what it sounds like. It doesn't sound like he was just all of a sudden you know, uh, decided he was going to betray Jesus. It was an ongoing thing in his life. So he says, listen to this. And Judas went to the chief priests, and this is verse 20, uh, 22.4, and, and officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. And we know why. When no crowd was present, because Jesus was so popular. I mean, he was healing. He was doing good. He was, he was teaching. He was healing the sick and the, those who had demons and all sorts of things. And for someone, the temple guard, to come and take Jesus in the daylight and when there was a crowd would be a turmoil. And they did not want to be viewed as 
you know, someone who was disrupting people doing good. Jesus had, a, a lot of the crowd had, was following Jesus. We talked about that in the previous verses. There were disciples following him around. So notice it was a conspiracy. It wasn't just that Judas decided, oh, I'll just kill, you know, this is how it's going to work. But the chief priests, they were ready, you know, they were trying to to get Jesus. They wanted to get rid of him. Uh, verse 22, 1 says it. Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. And when chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, they were afraid because they were afraid of the people. Yeah, the, the crowd was on Jesus' side. So let's keep going. Judas's greed, John 12, 1 through 8. Let's look at that. Well, we'll move a little quick. I know time would be of the essence. John 12, 1 through 8. So it was just before the Passover festival. This is 13. Oh, did I say John 12? Sorry, I'm in the wrong place. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived. Oh, wait a minute. Did I? Wait a minute. Yeah, this is right. Yeah, so six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So this is the setting, right? Jesus is, remember, guess who's there? Lazarus. And guess who's with, Judas is in, was with the disciples when Jesus raised or resuscitated Lazarus after he had been dead for four days. This is a even the Pharisees said, man, we got to get rid of this Jesus now. What are we going to do, right? And all this. So imagine that uh, Judas saw, he witnessed all of what happened in John chapter 11. And I am the resurrection of life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And he, he who lives and believes in me will never die. Judas did not believe any of it. He didn't think that Jesus was the Christ, son of the living God even after witnessing these signs, wonders, and miracles. So, Jesus was not clean. But let's listen to, let's keep going. I'm just developing Judas a little bit. So his response right, to this fragrance of perfume, filling the whole place where they were sitting. But one of, verse 4, but one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, <clears throat> who was later to, betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. And that's expensive. So what is Judas thinking? He's thinking, wow, this is we're wasting money by putting this perfume on Christ. It's a waste of money. So verse 12, 6. So what is he really saying? What's his real thought? 
That's what he wanted to portray on the surface. But what was his real thought? He did, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Imagine that. Judas had ulterior motives. And guess what was a weakness of Judas? Money. Guess who knew about what that weakness was? Satan. He tempted Judas to betray Christ. And he had influence over Judas in this area. Judas, now we're, we're seeing inside of what was going on. We could never have known that easily. The disciples didn't know it. What does Jesus say? Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for my day, of my, for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Jesus did not out Judas until the very last. He allowed him. He chose him to be a disciple, knowing all of this. So it's quite interesting as we let that develop and just let it sink in a little bit. And then the betrayal is in John 18. Let's look at that. John 18, 1 through 5, what happened there. <clears throat> so when he had finished praying, which is what we'll eventually get to, We'll finish 17, Jesus, chapter 17. Jesus leapt with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley on the other side of the garden, and he and his disciples went into it. <clears throat> Two. <clears throat> now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So this is a common... Uh, thing Jesus often went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. So it wasn't, it wasn't just like a one-time thing. Judas knew about it. And so he figured, he, he figured they, they were going to go there after they celebrated the Passover meal. So three, so Judas came to the Garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. They were ready for battle. They Judas had them ready. So notice, once they uh, were Jesus betrayed Christ. He grabbed the priests and he told them. He said, "This is it. This is the time. You got to get them now. Right? He's going to be in the garden, and so this is how this was all arranged." So. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? So this is part of how it unfolds, the betrayal. This is literally how it happened. And then we're going to go to Judas's end, which is Matthew 27, 3 through 10. And Matthew 27, this is what happens after 3 through 10. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, right? When they saw that Jesus was going to be crucified, right? After he probably was standing there through the whole thing and went and watched as Pilate was there and, you know, judged him. They cried, crucify him, crucify him. But notice what happens with Jesus. 
Uh, oh, I'm sorry, with Judas. He was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. So on one hand, it looks like Judas has a moment here where he is feeling guilty of what he has done. And this is what he says to them. I have sinned, he said. I have betrayed innocent blood. This is interesting when you think about it because Christ allowed the enemy into his camp. Why? Because he did nothing wrong. There was nothing to accuse him, even though he allowed a spy into his camp. I mean, imagine if Jesus had some ulterior motives and Judas, who was a disciple who was very close to him, would have told it. But Peter says, when he observed Christ, he said there was, he was perfect. He, he never sinned, and neither was in there, there any guile in his mouth. No recriminating words of, of revenge or, or hatred toward those who betrayed him. Not only that, but those who were his accusers. I mean, even the people who were nailing uh, the stakes into his hands and feet, he said, forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they are doing. So he says, I have sinned and I have betrayed innocent blood. What is, this is their response. What is that to us? They did not care about that at all. They were motivated again by Satan's thoughts, which was to get rid of Christ. Even after he had done all the signs necessary to prove, to demonstrate that he was the Messiah. They replied, that is your responsibility. That's up to you. You did it. You got paid, so get out of here. So what does Judas do? He, Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Chief priest picked up the coins and said, it is against the law to put this into the treasury, so it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. So, <clears throat> so even then, the religious leaders were, were religious in how they proceeded, even though they were crucifying Jesus. Uh, or instigating that he be crucified. So, also look at Mark 14. Mark 14, uh, 43 through 50. We'll just look at that real quick. <clears throat> so, verse 43 uh, says, Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve. This is right at the point where Jesus uh, was in the garden and Judas approached them with the priest and then so forth. So he says, just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. So Judas Figured out, he, he, he imagined that Jesus would be arrested, but remember, he knew Jesus didn't do anything wrong. He was innocent, really. But he agreed to have him 
arrested. Imagine what was in Judas's heart, which is the guilt that he felt when he realized that it went all the way to the place where Jesus was going to be condemned to death. And that that was tough for, for Judas. It's not to say Judas believed, but he felt tremendous guilt. So, going, so Jesus, Judas shows up in the garden, and there it is. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. All this is Judas going, you know, this is his attitude. So what happened? The men seized Jesus and arrested him. This is interesting how I, I'm just thinking about all the emotions that must have been there at the time. So Judas's end is in Matthew 27, uh, 3 through 10. Or did we already see that? No. Matthew 27. Now we got this is like a Bible study. <laughs> this is a Bible study. Matthew 27, 3 through 10. When Judas betrayed him, his kingdom seized with remorse, returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. He says, Oh, I think we already read this. I have sinned. They picked up the coins and they put them in the potter's field. Right? So I did this out of order, but. Nonetheless, you have the thought. Point H in our notes. Notes. Judas did not. <clears throat> Sorry. Judas did not have the proper foundation. This is the point. And it ended disastrously for him. So what was the foundation Judas needed? He needed salvation as his foundation. He needed to understand who Jesus was before he did the things he did but even though he had done those things he still had opportunity to believe in Christ but he took his life he hanged himself it ended disastrously for him he did not have the proper foundation point H the disciples did not believe that Jesus the, the disciples did believe that Jesus was and is the Christ and put their trust in him but obviously Judas did not. So point J, clean is equal to saved. Right? So the disciples, because they put their trust in Christ, were saved. They were saved before Pentecost. And when we're talking about in John 15, 3, the fruit bearing will begin from them at Pentecost. Notice the order saved, then fruit bearing. So what we have to make sure we understand is even though the disciples were saved before Pentecost, Jesus was not telling them go out and do things for Israel or only go to the lost sheep of Israel. He's getting ready to, they're getting ready to launch a brand new age where the church would be the focus, not Israel. And then the church, the church is his body, the fullness of him. So obviously it would wait, have to wait until after Pentecost. That's the key here. So in John 15, we're talking about fruit bearing. So obviously the fruit bearing that we're referring to is church age fruit, not fruit for Israel. That these disciples and this whole analogy of John chapter 15 is built around. So let's notice the order. It's First you need to become saved. And it doesn't matter what age you live in. 
So once you become saved, that is where you then come to learn what the will of God for your life is. So with the disciples here, they would have to be saved first. And just remember, there were lots of other people who were saved during this time. It is not just a matter of being saved. There were other people who were saved. But now the focus is on these core disciples, this group and their fruit to be born in this world. We are realizing the fruit that came from the Father's plan, through Jesus, through those branches, the disciples, the apostles. And we're seeing the fruit of it now in the church. We are benefiting from their labors and from the decisions that they made. So point number two, we'll move on. You are already clean. Point number two is because of the word I have spoken to you. So the thought is the disciples had a front row seat here. So clean, when Jesus says you, you are already clean. Clean is equal to saved. Yes, that's our short equation. Or, you know, both are the same. But also, we, we have to add more to it. It's saved and prepared for this new dispensation. Others were saved, but Jesus focuses on this group, the 11. And so when we read John chapter 13 and 14, which we've already read, that's the word I have spoken to you. So Judas wasn't there for some of this close instruction that the disciples received in chapter 14 because he had already gone he had already left but jesus taught specifically about the church age in john chapter 14 and how the father would be in us and we would be in the father and we christ would be in us and and so forth and 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 christ and the father would be in us we would be in christ right the mutual possession that we learned about. We learned about Jesus going away to prepare a place for us and then coming to take us to be with him where he is, to that place. So there's some key things, and he's he's telling in 14 to us to understand about the spirit of truth coming. And we know that is very pivotal for these this group of disciples. So that's the word he has spoken to them. What word is that? It's the mystery. That's what it was. He's talking about this new age. He's telling them to anticipate the the coming of the spirit of truth. The advocate. The comforter. So point B, the word I have spoken to you. I'm going to turn to John 17 to the end of the discourse. 6 through 9 where he says, hang on, John 17 and 6 through 9 says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. This is Jesus saying, I have revealed you to you, Father. And he's talking about uh, the information that he gave from the Father. That he told them, it's the Father in me. I've been constantly telling them, it's the Father, it's the Father. This is what he says at 
toward, just before he leaves to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, I have revealed you to those you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. There it is. They have obeyed your word. They have listened. They've given themselves. They've shown love. Why would they obey the word? Because they love me, and they do exactly as I command them. Now that they know that everything you have given me comes from you. Right? Uh, now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. Remember earlier when we were reading in John 13 about him washing the disciples' feet? And it was more than just, okay, just humility. I'm going to turn, skip back over there. Right? This is where Jesus is telling them. Now that I'm your teacher and Lord, this is 1314. Now that, now that I, I, your teacher and your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. So here it is. Very truly, I, say, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master. No messenger is greater than the one who sent him. So that is him teaching the Father's plan. Even though Jesus is the focal point, he is letting them know that you have to know that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. That the words I'm telling you, the very words I'm telling you, are the words the Father has given me. Back to John chapter 17. I'm sorry for all the skipping around, but we're just trying to get an understanding of what does he mean by because of the word I have spoken to you. So I revealed, six, I revealed to you those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. There it is. His disciples are on board. They understand the Father's plan. They knew with certainty that I came from you. This is right, this is the, the whole Father's plan to send Christ. And they believed that you sent me. The disciples' focus is now shifting a little bit here, isn't it? It's not just Jesus. They recognize the Father. So verse 9, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. So this is special for these disciples. Remember, the focus is on this small group of 11 okay, and, and, and how they're going to begin the church age. And God is going to use them to bear fruit. So, that's, that's the word I have spoken to you. And point C in our context is the word, the word or what is the, we've learned is the mystery revelation is of God establishes them and us. That's what it does. It, this new word that he's saying, he's not bolstering what Israel does, and, you know, what's the law and the Pharisees and the teachers. None of that is the word. The word is about this new revelation. It's the mystery. So when we read 14 through 17, he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, 
for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Now you have to remember, as we're reading this, we're, we're couching this from the standpoint of Jesus literally saying these things. But when John wrote this information by the spirit of truth, it was many years after this. So he, he could, he, we, as we read this, I have given them your word and the world has hated them. They didn't understand the fullness of what Jesus is saying. But boy, they do now as we're reading the prayer of Jesus and we see the significance of it. Of course, we could only fully understand it after Pentecost where the Spirit had full reign to be able to, to, to say, to, to help us understand the things that we could not bear at the time. So, so 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. That's the result of the baptism of the Spirit. We're identified with Christ so much so that we are just like he is. If he's not of the world, they are not of the world. Even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Now the truth and the your word expressing the truth has to do with the Holy Spirit coming and guiding us into all truth. The all-truth part of it is where we learn the new revelation that is ours in this age. So we're, how are we set up? What does the Holy Spirit does? He do? He sets us apart unto God in a special relationship. Now, he did that with the disciples. And he does it with us because, verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray that also for those who will believe in me through their message. So it's not for them alone, but his prayer. All the stuff he just said about the disciples is also true of us. It's not for them alone. Because then he goes on and starts talking about some of the very features that he revealed all the way back in chapter 14. That all of them may be one father, just as you are in me, and I am in you. When did he when he said that, he says, all this was going to happen to us when the Spirit of Truth comes. So on that day you will realize I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. So we are being set apart for God's special and holy purposes by means of the Spirit, and according to the truth. What truth that the Spirit would bring is in now for us the Word. Your Word is truth. We have the Word as truth. So we have been studying this new revelation. We have been focused on it intensely. And now it's time for us to even put aside even more from our thinking and allow the Spirit to fully sanctify us, to fully set us apart unto himself. So, interesting. As we read these verses, I mean, it just sparks more and more and more for us to think about. 
So the last thought, the disciples still have much to learn, even though they are clean. So we notice that clean does not come without expectations. God does not have expectations for salvation. He says, well, they're already clean. And they're already clean, even though they don't have the full knowledge and understanding of the church, which is, they're going to be apostles. But God knows he has trusted the Spirit to lead and guide them into all truth. So in John 16, 12, he tells them, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But notice, they're already clean. So you can be clean, but doesn't mean you're cognizant of all that God has to tell you. So notice, it is a matter of fact that we must not put the cart before the horse. First, people need to be saved. And this goes back to the scripture that we always use in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, where it says, It is God's will that all men be saved and to come to the full knowledge of the truth. That is that In that order, it is all God's will that all men be saved. You've got to have this in the foundation first. We saw what happened with Judas. Even though he had plenty of opportunities, did not have the proper foundation in the end. And what happened? It was disastrous for him. But we have that opportunity to put our trust in, in Christ and to be sure of the foundation that we, we have in him. We have to make sure, we have to take time to examine that foundation. We have to welcome questions and uh, objections to the things related to the foundation. It's the only way we're going to come to know it intimately, that it is sure, that it is solid. And then we can build on that foundation. Like it says, that we, it's God's will that we, we be saved and to come to the full knowledge of the truth. That is the goal for us. So 12 through 15 says it all. I have much more to say to you. Much more. More than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive what is uh, what from me, what he will make known to you. So, we're going to have to close. We'll continue, but this is a short verse, but it just, to me, has a lot of thought. And one of the first things I think about is establishing a sure foundation. Two, after we do that, the objective is to continue to grow according to the new revelation that God has for our lives. Christ spent a tremendous amount of time pouring into those disciples in both of those areas. And now we are reaping the benefits of the establishment of this new age. Now we have to come and take the take the, the the ball or you know the baton and move forward as we f focus our attention 
on what God has done in Christ. Let's bow our heads as we close. We'll think more about this next week as we continue with verse 4. Let's bow our heads. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We thank you for this privilege of being called into this particular age. Thank you for those who are here and able to think the thoughts that we have been destined that have been destined for our glory before time began. Thank you for this group, this church. We pray that we will continue and to meet together to have these sort of meetings as we go forward. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. And now unto him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forevermore, let the church say, Amen. Amen.